I will echo my good mornings once again. And let me ask you to turn in a Bible, please, to a couple different places. First, to Psalm 16. Psalm 16, and then if you'll find Acts chapter 2 and put something in there, we'll get to that a little bit later on in the message. And I would encourage you, uh, if you're visiting this morning, we're very thankful that you're here. Very glad to have you and celebrating this service with us as we remember the resurrection of our Lord. Um, but I would definitely encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you. If you don't happen, if you didn't bring one with you or don't have one on your uh, phone or maybe a tablet, if you brought it in to, with you this morning, uh, please use one of the few Bibles there um, that's, that's available there. And the reason I do that is because for two reasons. Number one, we're going to be looking at this passage a lot. I think it'll be helpful for you to be able to use it as a point of reference as we're working through them. Uh, but also it helps to keep me accountable. Uh, what I'm sharing with you this morning isn't my innovative thoughts on the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, I want to share with you God's word. I want to share with you what God has said about the resurrection of Christ and what God has, the truth that God has given to us in his word about himself. And so this way you can make sure that what I'm sharing with you is not just my own thoughts, my own wisdom, my own good counsel, but really it is God's word because God's word is powerful. It is alive. It, it does, it does something for us. It, it works God's plan in our lives. And so I think it's a good idea to have your Bible open. So if you're using one of the few Bibles, you can turn right to Psalm 16 on page 553. And if you're using, if you're uh, keeping your place there going to Acts, you'll find Acts 2 on page 910. We're going to be looking at Acts 16, or sorry, Psalm 16 in just a moment. Let me ask you a question to begin with today. Do you fear death? Are you afraid to die? Now, most people, not just simply in our culture, but really in most cultures around the world, would respond yes to some extent. That fear may not be a paralyzing fear, but there is some apprehension nonetheless. We may fear how we will die. We may fear the circumstances that will bring death to us. We may fear the emotional and physical distress associated with that time of life. We may fear the unknown of what happens to us at death. We are not sure of how that transition will play out. We may fear the unknowns as we pass from this world into eternity. We may fear leaving behind the things that we know in this life, the things that we love in this life, the things that, that comfort us in this life. But the reality that death will come and the possibility that it may come sooner than we expect I think are enough to really inflame our fears. But some people may honestly say that they're not afraid to die. And perhaps you're one of those people. I'm not afraid of death. Perhaps it seems normal and natural to you as part of the process of life. Perhaps death is, seems very distant to you. You don't fear it because you think it's something that will happen down the road, maybe many decades from now, I know a lot of young people probably feel that way. And perhaps you feel secure because of your lifestyle choices. You, you work out, you eat well, you get regular checkups from your doctor, you feel good about the state of your health, that you'll, you'll live. Death is not on your, your doorstep, it's not imminent for you. And those things are all well and good. But the fact remains that death is still a reality for all of us. Every human being dies. No one escapes death. And what's even more sobering 
is the fact that death will probably come much sooner than we want or expect. Even if we live to a ripe old age, I've never known a healthy old person that woke up one morning and said, tomorrow will be the day that I die. It's not something that we expect. It's not something that we anticipate being near to us. I am reminded of the football player just last weekend who was killed in an auto accident, right? It was hit by a truck as he was crossing the highway, 24 years old. A player in the NFL, successful college quarterback, at the age of 24, did he expect when he woke up that morning that he would die? Probably not. So when we think about these things, when we factor in the reality that any of us could die at any moment, I don't know how death does not just paralyze, the fear of death does not paralyze us. Now, death is not a topic we want to talk about. It's not something we really want to think about. But I think we must. Because we are all mortal, and we are all going to die. We are all going to face an eternal future. And some are facing an eternal future of tragic consequences. So do you fear death? Are you afraid to die? Maybe the more important question that we can consider this morning is, where do we turn to for help? What will bring us hope and comfort for our fears? Is there a solution to the problem of death? Is there something better than death that we can look forward to? I think David, the Old Testament saint David, gives us the answer to that question in Psalm 16. So let's look at that passage and read it this morning. Psalm 16. I'm the Tom of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let me give you a roadmap to let you know kind of where we're headed this morning. First, I want us to look at Psalm 16. I want us to consider David's confidence in God when, when death seemed very imminent to him. The secondly, I want us to consider how Jesus' resurrection from the dead on Easter Sunday fulfilled all that David hoped for. And then third, I want us to consider how we find the life and the joy that David expresses here in Psalm 15 and how those are fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection. So first, let's consider David's hopeful and joyful confidence in God. David's hopeful and joyful confidence in God. Notice that in verse 1, David prays to God for protection. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, David gives us nothing in this psalm to indicate what is the source or the, the cause, the specific cause of his, this fear that he's facing, but clearly he's in, he's in some serious trouble. 
his life appears to be in danger. If you look at verse 10, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. David believes here that death is imminent. That word Sheol in verse 10 refers to the abode of the dead. In the, in the Hebrew worldview, Sheol is the place that a person's soul goes to when they die. So in an Old Testament world, again, not really considering the full revelation of the New Testament, when a person died, their body would be buried into the ground, but their soul, the essence of what they were, the essence of who they were, would go to this place called Sheol. And so Sheol would be the realm of these disembodied dead, these, these souls or these spirits. They're just kind of hanging out there, but it's not a fun place to be. It's very dark. It's very boring. It's very pale. In fact, I think about Psalm 6, when, when David was in another time of his life, when he was in serious danger, he prayed to God, God, will you rescue me? Don't let my soul go to Sheol. And his reasoning was, if I go to Sheol, I cannot worship you. I cannot praise you. I cannot live in this kind of relationship that we have here on earth. So somehow in Sheol, there's a disconnect between what happens here and there, right? What a, what a, what a deceased person, what a soul what a, in Sheol would experience would be nothing like what they could experience here, here on earth. They're, they're disconnected from human activities and, and human pursuits and human interests. It's a shadowy netherworld. And so in Sheol, the dead exist hopelessly. They are indeed, in a very real way, in a very real sense, cut off from God. So David here is facing some kind of threat that includes the very real possibility of death. He fears that his soul could go to Sheol and that his body could see corruption there. He's referring to the decomposition of the body once, it, it, once it's put into the ground, right? Death initiates that decomposition of the body. So David here is expressing, especially in verse 1 and verse 10, a fear of death. He's expressing really what most people, what all people probably do fear at some point in their life. And so because of this fear of death... In verse 1, he pleads with God to save his life. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. But what is striking about Psalm 16, especially when you compare it to other psalms that David wrote, is that David really here is expressing great confidence in God. In fact, a lot of other psalms in which David is, is praying for God to save him, to protect him, he kind of goes on and on about it. He repeats that claim of, of, Lord, protect me, Lord, save me, Lord, spare my life. But here he kind of says it once and kind of gets over it. In fact, a lot of scholars like to refer to this not as a psalm of distress, but as a psalm of confidence. David's confidence is in God. And we see that, that tone of confidence throughout this psalm. In verse 1, notice he refers to God as his refuge. He finds safety and shelter and protection and comfort there in God. He trusts that God will protect him. In verse 2, he refers to God as my Lord. You are my Lord, he says. And that word Lord in the Hebrew is the name Adonai, which is a name that reflects great power. It's the way that they would, the Hebrew, the Jews would refer to God's omnipotence, his great power, his power that overcomes all other powers, his power that comes to us in times of, of our need for help. God is, is David's helper and defender. He is the one who will act on God's behalf. He also says in verse 8 that God is at his right hand. That is a way of expressing the fact that God is very near, that God's help is, is very present, that God's in the place of David's strength. God is right next to him to help him in this vulnerable moment. 
We see David's confidence also expressed in verse 2 when he says, I have no good apart from you. In other words, God is the source of every good thing in David's life. And right now, things don't seem so good. And so what David is appealing to is, is God's goodness. God, you are a good God. Everything that I have that is good comes from you. You only do good things for me. Right now is not good. So he's appealing to God. God, do your good things for me once again. Show me your goodness in this situation. In verses 5 and 6, we see such beautiful verses here where David really lays hold to God's covenantal commitment to his people. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Here, David is using language from Israel's conquest of Canaan that we're going to start studying next week in the book of Joshua. As the people conquered the land, they divided up that land as their inheritance into the various tribal allotments. And so David here is expressing God is, is expressing God's commitment to him. He's confident that God is his God. David is God's son. He is very close to God. God is very close to him. David knows here that God's steadfast love has committed him to helping David in his time of need. And David enjoys the good blessings of God. Notice in verse 6, he refers to these good blessings as a beautiful inheritance. This is what comes when we live in a right relationship with God. David further expresses his confidence in verse 7, when he says that God's counsel directs him to act rightly and wisely in the midst of his situation. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also, my heart instructs me. In other words, God will not lead him astray. God will guide him in knowing what he should do in this situation. He's, he's very steadfast in God. And then in verse 8, we see that David, David's trust in God expressed once again, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. So David places his confidence in God, and that is a good thing. He expresses that confidence very Forthrightly, David's hope is only in God in the midst of the situation. But notice also here that David's confidence in God leads him to respond joyfully and hopefully in the situation. You notice in verse 9, he says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. That word therefore is a connective word. We saw this a few weeks ago in Psalm 46. It takes the reality of verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be be shaken. That's the reality of the situation. That's what is true. My hope is in God. Therefore, what is the response? My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. David's life is at risk. He is facing the possibility of death. But how does he feel about that in this moment? There is great joy, not because of his situation, because the God who holds him in his hands. Not only does he expect God to save his life. Notice in verse 10. He expects God to save his life. For you will not. That's a certainty there. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. There's that sense of confidence. He not only expects God to save his life, he also expects God to unleash his blessings in abundance. Blessings that bring his full joy and pleasure in this life, the life that God has given him instead of, the, of death. If you look at verse 11, he says, You make known to me the path of life. 
In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That doesn't sound like a person who's facing death at his doorstep, does it? But there's great rejoicing there. There's great blessing. He understands that only God will spare his life, that he will unleash his blessings in full abundance. So a crisis that could bring horrific tragedy, a crisis that would bring death, turns instead to life at its best because of who God is and because of his commitment to David. Again, we don't know the circumstances here, that, the specific circumstances that prompted David to write this psalm. And we also don't know how God intervened specifically in this situation. But we can be sure that he did answer David. We can be sure that David did not die. David here is not on his deathbed. David sought God's help to preserve his life. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And God answered that prayer. God proved that David's confidence was justified and it resulted in abundant joy in his life. What an awesome response there. In that moment as he prays to God and God works out that situation to spare his life, what greater joy. The joy was not because simply God delivered him, because God, his confidence was in God. And through that situation, God brought blessings, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. But if we think about this psalm a little bit more closely, we realize that even though God spared David's life in this moment, it was only temporary, wasn't it? God only spared David temporarily. David eventually died. 1 Kings 2.10 David died like everybody else dies. When the moment came for David to die, God did not preserve him. His soul departed this world and descended to Sheol. And he was cut off from the advantages and the blessings of earthly life and even more from the presence of God. His corpse was placed in a grave and it suffered corruption. So is David's confidence in God misplaced? Was his devotion to God irrational? And why would this be to David's advantage for God to help him here if he was just going to die anyway? I don't know how many more years. We don't know when this happened in David's life. I think it happened probably before he became king. So he still has another 40 years at least to die. Let's just say that. What advantage is there in living another 40 years if he's eventually going to die? What's another couple of decades? What's another half a century if his soul will be abandoned to Sheol and his body will see corruption in the end? Well, Psalm 16 is such a beautiful psalm. It's such a hopeful psalm. It's such a delightful psalm. Until we realize that God was just delaying the inevitable for David. But again, let's read a little more closely. I think when we look at this psalm, we see that David's confidence in God was for this moment. There was something happening in his life. He, he prayed, God intervened, God spared him. But I think as David is praying this, he's praying not just for this moment. There are things in this psalm that indicate to us that David's confidence in God transcends this moment in which he was facing death. David isn't just 
sucking up to God for temporary help. He has here an enduring love for God. He has a, a sincere devotion to God that defines his entire life. Again, look back at verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. In fact, he, has, he refuses to turn back on God. He refuses to capitulate to idolatry. Verse 4, he says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. I'm not going to go and follow the crowd. I'm not going to go after these other gods that my fellow countrymen are putting their hopes in. in verse six, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. That's not spoken of one who thinks that God is going to help him in this moment. Verse 8. He indicates a rock-solid commitment to God. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. In verse 9, his joy is an enduring joy. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Also in verse 9, he believes that his life is truly secure in God. My flesh also dwells secure. In verse 10, look at the certainty with which he speaks that God will not abandon his life, that he'll be dead forever. He will not spend eternity in Sheol, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In fact, his outlook on the situation seems to look to eternity. Look at verse 11. You make known to me the path of life in your presence, where God dwells eternally. There is fullness of joy at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. These aren't merely effusive praises. These aren't empty commitments. These aren't hollow declarations. Even though David does not necessarily have a, a full New Testament sense of eternal life, he does here understand that there is life beyond Sheol in the presence of God that can only be properly described with words and phrases like secure, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. So I have to think here that David is thinking more about than just simply his temporary situation this moment where his life is in danger becomes a window to see something far bigger and far grander and far more eternal david here speaks more than he knows he may not understand yet how god will do this but we do know that early in his reign early in david's reign when he was king god promised him that one of his descendants would rule on his throne over God's people forever. And we understand with the full light of the New Testament that this descendant, whom we know is Jesus Christ, would fulfill David's hope in his own resurrection from the dead. In fact, it is Jesus' resurrection from the dead on Easter Sunday that fulfilled David's future hope expressed here in Psalm 16. So let's think about that. Let's think about Jesus' Easter fulfillment of David's future hope. Jesus' Easter fulfillment of David's future hope. Psalm 16 is quoted twice in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 28, and Acts 13, verse 35. In both cases, 
the Apostle Peter in Acts 2 and the Apostle Paul in Acts 13 prove that Jesus was raised on, uh, raised from the dead on the basis of David's words in Psalm 16. So let's look at Acts chapter 2. Let's look at how uh, uh, Paul, Peter here quotes David to prove that the resurrection is true. Acts chapter 2 is page 910 in your pew Bible if you're using that. Turn over there so we can read it. Just some context here. It's the day of Pentecost. It's 50 days since Jesus rose from the dead. It's a Jewish feast. Many Jewish, uh, Jewish um, uh, people from all over the Roman world have come to Jerusalem to celebrate this mandated feast in the Old Testament. They're supposed to come to Jerusalem to celebrate this. And some supernatural things have been happening. And Peter here, it begins to explain to them why these things are happening as they are. And we'll start in verse 22, Acts 2, verse 22. All these things that these people are witnessing here are related to something that happened to a man named Jesus. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter here is just basically giving us the account of the Easter story. There's this man, Jesus, whom the Jewish leaders arrested, they tried, they beat, they caused all kinds of suffering. Then they crucified him to a cross, but God raised him from the dead. Then he quotes Psalm 16. Look at verse 25. This is Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness. With your presence. So David here is, or excuse me, Peter here is using Psalm 16 to explain that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And now he begins to explain even more in verse 29. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, he's saying here that David is dead. David, the great patriarch David was not speaking about himself when he wrote Psalm 16. He was actually speaking about somebody else. Why? Because he died. He died and was buried. His tomb is there. In fact, they could all take a field trip to where David's tomb was. And they could open it up and they could verify that his bones are there, that his body went to Sheol, that his soul went to Sheol, that his body underwent corruption. But when David wrote Psalm 16... He's saying that he was really prophesying about Jesus Christ. Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would, not, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In other words, David knew that God would raise up one of his descendants. God had already promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that one of David's descendants would sit upon David's throne and he would rule over God's people forever. So David foresaw, David spoke about, David believed that this descendant, this person Jesus, would be raised from the dead. And that God would not leave Jesus in Sheol, or Hades here is the Greek translation. 
he was writing here that God would not leave Jesus in Sheol or that his corpse would see decay. So Peter here is affirming the resurrection of Christ on the basis of the Old Testament written over a thousand years before. He's, he's, he's showing the certainty of it by the Scripture. And then he goes on in verse 32 to speak of him being an eyewitness. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not descend into the heavens, did not ascend into the heavens, but he said, he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here he's, he's um, quoting from another psalm to show that what these things were about really were referring to Christ. David did not ascend into heaven, but Christ did. Christ was raised. He had been there with them for 40 days. And at the end of that 40-day period, he ascended into heaven where he sits at the Father's right hand. So David here, or Sir Peter here is saying that God's word is true. That what David prophesied a thousand years before actually happened. When Jesus was raised from the dead, God did what he had promised over a thousand years before. And they, the disciples, Peter and the others, are witnesses to that fact. They've encountered the risen Christ face to face. Now look at the appeal he makes in verse 36 to those that are there hearing him. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he's telling them, you ought to believe that this Jesus is both Lord and Christ, that he is God's appointed king for Israel. He's the one bringing God's promised salvation. Why? How do we know this? Because God raised him from the dead. If God raised him from the dead, it makes him both Lord and Christ. And if he is both Lord and Christ, if he is raised from the dead, you ought to put your trust in him. That's the response. If these things are true, you respond by trusting in Christ. Now let's turn over to Acts 13. Just a few pages over. Page 922 in the Pew Bible. Acts 13. Again, just a little bit of context here. The Apostle Paul, great missionary apostle, is traveling through the region that we would today call the country of Turkey. And he has stopped at a town called Pisidian Antioch. He enters into a synagogue, which was his custom, and he begins to worship with the Jews there of that city. And when he is invited to speak, he first walks through the Jews concerning their history, their ancestral history recorded in the Old Testament, showing how God was working in history to bring everything to this moment when he was right there in their presence in the synagogue. But in verse 26, he begins to, to share with them that God has given him a message of salvation and that this message is for them. Look at verse 36, Acts 13, 26. I'm sorry, 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and among those, you, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled, by, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So here, Paul is saying that the message of salvation here centers around this person of Jesus. 
God has sent Paul to these Jews in Pisidian Antioch to tell them about this message of salvation, that this message of salvation centers around this person, Jesus. This person, Jesus, who was crucified, but who did not remain crucified because God raised him from the dead. And that resurrection has been attested to by many witnesses. In fact, the resurrection is not only attested by many witnesses, it's also proved by the Scriptures. It's been prophesied by the Scriptures. Look at verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He also fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, your holy one will not see corruption. He's quoting there from first from Psalm 2-7, and then from Isaiah 55, verse 3. And then finally in verse 35, he quotes from Psalm 16-10. And then he goes on to make the comparison. He goes on to explain how Psalm 16 applies more fully to Jesus than it does to David. Verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. That's a euphemism for death. He died. God had a purpose for David's life, but he died like everybody else dies. He fell asleep, he was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. Okay? But he whom God raised up from the dead did not see corruption. So those words that David prays in Psalm 16, that they had a certain application to him, had an even greater application to this one Jesus, the one who was crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. His body did not go to Sheol, his Sorry, his soul did not go to Sheol. His body did not see corruption. In other words, David died. David was buried. His body decayed. But Jesus' body did not see corruption because God raised him from the dead. So Psalm 16.10, which Paul quotes in verse 35 here, points to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 16. David was hoping for the resurrection of Jesus. He was, hoping, he was hoping that Jesus would be raised from the dead because it would be in Jesus' resurrection David would live in the presence of God with fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Now what does this mean for the Jews of Pisidian Antioch? What does it mean for us? Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man's forgiveness of sins, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. In other words, he's saying the resurrection of Jesus brings forgiveness of sins. It breaks our spiritual slavery. It brings us true life, eternal life. So Peter and Paul draw the conclusion that David spoke about Jesus when he wrote Psalm 16. 1,000 years before it ever happened, David foretold that Jesus, one of his own descendants would be raised from the dead. But even more than predicting the resurrection, Psalm 16 expresses David's hope a thousand years before in the resurrection of Jesus itself. His life would be bound with the resurrection of Christ. Not only would Jesus be raised from the dead, but because of David's confidence in God, David too would be raised from the dead and would live forevermore. Because Jesus would be raised from the dead three days after his crucifixion, David would be raised from the dead on the last day of history. This is how God would ultimately answer David's prayer in Psalm 16.1, Preserve me 
O God, for in you I take refuge. And David was confident that God would do that. In the fullness of time, God sent Jesus into the world, born of the Virgin Mary, of the house and lineage of David, to live the life that God requires all people to live. But we fail to live that life, don't we? God demands utter perfection. Those of you who are good students, right? I was a good student. 99 on a test is awesome, right? You're like really close to 100. 99% on God's test is a failing grade. God requires us to be perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We all fail. But the good news for us is that Jesus was perfect. He was completely innocent, sinless. He lived in every way. Every word that he spoke, every thought that he thanked, every act that he did was all in a manner that was pleasing to God, that honored God. And yet, despite this perfect life, Jesus would die a humiliating and ignoble death, death on a cross. But God would not allow him, his Holy One, to see corruption. God raised Jesus from the dead to prove that he accepted his sacrificial death on our behalf for our sins. And to vindicate Jesus of the injustice he suffered. God raised Jesus to life. Conquering once and for all. All the powers of sin and death and Sheol. And God raised Jesus from the dead to dispossess his enemies for good. And to reign eternally over his kingdom. Inhabited with his people. Or to use the words of David in Psalm 16.3. The saints in the land. The excellent ones in whom is all his delight. So Christ's resurrection had important implications for David, but they also have important implications for us. So let's consider that briefly. What does our our participation in Christ's resurrection look like? How do we participate in Christ's resurrection and in David's resurrection joy? We've already laid out the psalm, Psalm 16, in fairly straightforward fashion. Don't have to go into a lot of explanation about it. It's important that we do to make sure we understand the sense of it. But this is one of those psalms that you could read and you can just kind of feel it, right? You can feel the joy. You can acknowledge, man, this expresses my own heart. It's possible. This expresses my own convictions. This expresses my own confidence, right? I read it for myself. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I can say that. And how can I say that? Because Christ was raised from the dead. David's expressing his confidence in God. We express our confidence in God because Christ was raised from the dead. Verses 5 and 6, the Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Those things apply to us. It is for us. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. Because Christ is raised, we have a beautiful inheritance. We have a relationship with God that we cannot otherwise have. We can come to Him. We can receive His life. We can receive His blessings. He is ours and He is mine. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. What great confidence can we say that we can say that because Christ is raised from the dead. 
or even more, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not let my soul, or you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Those things are true for me just as they were for David. Why? Because Christ was raised from the dead. Because he was raised from the dead, our sins have been forgiven. We have a new relationship with God. We've been brought into his family. And he gives to us the blessings that he would, that parents give to their children. But blessings that are even far more infinite than we can understand or realize. He has made known to us the path of life. We are able to come into his presence and know the fullness of his joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's speaking there of eternal life. This is what the resurrection of Jesus does for us. He accomplishes these things, not just for David, but for us. Realize what Jesus said in John 10.10. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says in John 11.25-26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's the essential question, right? Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died upon the cross for your sins? Do you trust that he takes away the sin debt, the sin penalty that impedes us from a relationship with God? That that sin demands God's righteous justice. It demands His righteous wrath. And so why do we fear death? Why ought we to fear death? Because if we are not following Christ, if we are still in our sins, there is an eternal eternity of torment for us. That ought to put, paralyze us with fear. To know that I could, I could die today in my sins and spend eternity in hell, and it wouldn't be God's fault. It'd be mine. Because I've sinned against Him. But look at the grace of what God has done for us. He sent Jesus to take your place, to suffer for your sins, so that they might be forgiven, so that you do not have to spend eternity in hell, but so that you can have a right relationship with Him, a relationship in which, David says, our fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. What a joyful reality that is for us as God's people. What a joyful reality that is to know that in the, because of the resurrection of Jesus, We have an eternal relationship with God that death can never cause separation. Death can never nullify that. We can have an eternal relationship with God where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Albert Barnes wrote about our eternal life and joy in this way. This is a lengthy quote, so just bear with me here. He says, there are pleasures forevermore. Happiness that will be eternal It is not enjoyment such as we have here on earth, which we feel is soon to terminate. It is joy which we, which can have no end. Here, in respect to any happiness which we enjoy, we cannot but feel that it is soon to cease. No matter how secure the sources of our joy may be, we know that happiness here in this world cannot last long, for life cannot long continue. And even though life should be lengthened out for many years, we have no certainty that our happiness will measure up to our earthly existence. The dearest friend that we, that we have may soon leave us to return no more. Health, 
the source of so many comforts and essential to the enjoyment of any comfort here, may soon fail. Property, however firmly it may be secured, may take to itself wings and fly away. Soon at any rate, if these things do not leave us, we shall leave them. And in respect to happiness from them, we shall, as be, we shall be as though they had not been. Not so will it be at the right hand of God. Happiness there, whatever may be its nature, will be eternal. Losses, disappointments, bereavement, sickness can never occur there. Nor can the anticipation of death, though at the most distant period and after many countless millions of ages, ever mar our joys. How different in all these things will heaven be from earth. How desirable to leave the earth and to enter on those eternal joys. That is what we have to look forward to. That is what our experience will be because of the resurrection of Christ. So, maybe the question we should ask is not so much, do I fear death, but do I have this life? We're all going to die, and there's nothing that we can do about that. But will you live? Will you truly live? Do you have hope beyond death? Are you walking in the path of life? Do you have fullness of joy? And if these things are true, if Jesus really did die for my sins, if he really did rise from the grave, if his resurrection means that I can walk in the path of life and experience the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, then why am I expending all my energy? Why am I giving all my focus? Why am I fueling all my desires for things in this world that are ultimately going to come to nothing? Why am I pursuing trinkets? Why am I building sandcastles that winds and waves are going to wipe out? It behooves us to take a longer and wider view of our lives. What are we living for? What will bring us joy, real joy? What will last for eternity? God has made known to us the path of life. And the path of life is abiding in the resurrected Christ. He leads us the very presence of God, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your plan for Christ's resurrection goes back to eternity past. It wasn't, didn't just happen that Christ fell into the hands of evil men and he was crucified unjustly and you had to somehow do something to correct it and, and you raised him from the dead. David proves to us that this reality has been in your plan for ages and ages past. And we thank you that it is so. For it is only in the death of Christ that our penalty, the penalty of our sin is paid, that we are forgiven, and that we are brought into a, a right relationship with you. And because of that, we can have the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. I pray today, Lord, that we would simply not be going through the motions, going through the motions of church, going through the motions of an Easter Sunday, 
But I pray that we would really consider, Lord, what your word would, would have for us today. I pray it would cause us to reevaluate our, our heart, our lives, and we would be able to look into our heart and, and see, Lord, are we really your people? Are we really trusting in you? Are you our only hope? And if that's true, Lord, I pray that we would walk in that. Pray that we would lay aside all of the trinkets, Lord, as Paul says in Philippians 3, to know the power of your resurrection, that being willing to suffer whatever comes because we are Christian, we want to know the joy of being raised from the dead on the final day. And for those that are here this morning, Lord, who don't know you, I pray that this message would be a message of joy for them because your salvation brings to us joy. May you work in hearts of people, Lord, to save those that you are drawing to yourself. May you be glorified in that, Lord. We would praise you and thank you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.